This is KVR, Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 48, Dogura the Space Monster. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherzel. Thank you, everyone, for your positive responses to the three-part episode on the Godzilla anime trilogy. It ended up being three episodes in three days, effectively. It was grueling, but I love the finished product. It turned out wonderfully. I don't know if you can tell but Kaiju Vision Radio has an intense editing process. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and those of you who have listened to every episode, you might be able to tell that by now. I'm starting to reflect on episodes of the past more, now that it's almost 50 episodes that have been released on the show. The main point is is that I'm glad that the anime movies are genuinely thought-provoking, and they had real balls in an era where Hollywood seems to be taking the safe path and trying to make the most dollars. I definitely don't love the anime movies because they're made by Toho or or just because they're Japanese. You can check out the episodes on the Heisei movies that are uh, on this show for uh, proof of that. It's not that I dislike the Heisei movies, but they are a mixed bag in so many ways. So now we'll begin the second half of season two, which is 1964 to 1984. And the first part was 1955 to 1964. In this episode, I will be covering the 1964 film Dogura the Space Monster. Though this movie gets ignored a lot compared to the other kaiju movies, I do like this and I want to show you what I see when I see it. The related topic for this episode is the Lion Court Rocks dispute. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision's unique, audience-focused method to arm the listeners with the facts. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Dogura is a force of nature. It is a mutant space cell kaiju that reacted to radiation above Japan's atmosphere from satellites. It has multiple forms, originally looking like a translucent blob, while its final form resembles a jellyfish. It feeds on carbon, which it converts to energy. It stands out in the kaiju genre because of its non-anthropomorphic characteristics. Inspector Komai is the well-meaning but sometimes bumbling detective assigned to investigate diamond heists that take place in Japan. American self-proclaimed diamond broker Mark Jackson is sly, smart, and boastful. Dr. Munakata is a straightforward crystallographer who is deterred from his main profession to find a way to neutralize Dogura. His secretary is Masayo Kirino, a caring and observant young woman. Her brother Kirino works at the Electric Wave Laboratory and helps in the scientific effort to neutralize Dogura. Natsui Hamako is the female member of a group of diamond-stealing gangsters. Like the other gangsters, she is in it for herself. The human and kaiju plots are originally separate. They intersect with each other as the movie progresses, and they are connected by the end. Dogura is the problem. First, the JSDF uses surface-to-air missiles, fighter jets, and other military hardware to attack Dogura. Instead, Dogura undergoes mitosis, making the problem worse. The problem is solved when Dogura's weakness to wasp venom is discovered. Dr. Munakata and other scientists create a synthetic version of the wasp venom. The venom is loaded into spray tanks and then sprayed into the air around Dogura. The wasp venom crystallizes Dogura and pieces of it fall to the ground as multicolored boulders. The film is based on a story written by Jojiro Okami titled Space Mons. Director Ishiro Honda and screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa added the diamond heist plot. The story is moderately complex with some subplot activity, but everything comes together in the end. Budget figures for this film are unavailable at the time of the recording of this podcast, but the film does have a lower budget than previous kaiju movies. This is one of the first kaiju movies with a reduced budget, which required the production staff to do more with less. As a result, planned special effects scenes were excised. The audience sees less of the monster and more of the diamond heist plot. 
special effects were directed by Eiji Tsuburaya and included animation, superimposition, atmospheric effects, matte paintings, composites, practical effects, and marionettes, namely of Dogora. The jellyfish marionette was connected to strings and then placed in a small vat of water to make it look as if Dogora was floating in the atmosphere. Dogora is also depicted using animation. It is filmed in tohoscope and has mineral sound. Being a Sekizawa screenplay, the film has a light tone most of the time. The scenes with Dogora have more gravity than the rest of the movie does. With a giant jellyfish kaiju space monster that is weak to wasp venom, this is a fantasy film. Dogora is an experimental film because it features what may be the most unusual kaiju ever introduced at the time of its release. It breaks new ground with regards to the range of types of kaiju in the genre. It is the first kaiju movie to feature a space monster. It was tricky to have such a non-traditional kaiju. It is the first kaiju movie made in Japan to have a non-Japanese American in such a significant role, predating the appearances of both Nick Adams and Russ Tamblin. Dogora the Space Monster represents an expansion of style for the kaiju genre because this is the first movie with a space monster, and the space monster is not part of an alien invasion, and it is not controlled by aliens. Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, reinforces the style of Dogora the Space Monster by sharing these characteristics. Having an American in the cast was part of an effort to sell the film in overseas markets. The Mark Jackson character was originally meant to be a recurring character in a series of films, but this did not come to fruition. The film is aimed at kaiju fans, science fiction fans, and fans of Yakuza genre films. With its lighter tone, it is meant to be entertaining. The film was released on August 11, 1964 in Japan, but it was not very successful. Box office figures were unavailable at the time of the recording of this episode. In 1965, it was released in one theater in Hawaii with the original Japanese soundtrack and English subtitles. The film was released in America directly to television in 1965 by American International Television. The title was changed to Dagora after a focus group alerted AIT to the possibility of people thinking the movie had to do with dogs. American advertisements for the film portrayed it as a serious monster movie, which did not help. It has a rating of 5.8 on that movie database, with only 505 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. The film is known among kaiju fans, but it and the kaiju are in the lower tier of monsters with regards to popularity. The original 83-minute film was cut down to 79 minutes for the English-language version. The focus of the English-language version is Dogora, while the focus of the original Japanese version is the human plot involving the diamonds. The international dub dialogue from Toho is excruciatingly bad. There is an anti-nuclear connection regarding the atmospheric radiation pollution caused by satellites. Because Dogora is shrouded in mystery and the destructive events that it causes are so strange, dealing with unknown things and unpredictable events is a significant portion of the overall mood of the film. The film is light on themes, but it is mentioned that scientific cooperation through the United Nations will create potential for peace. Scientists are portrayed as the people to go to in order to solve complex problems like Dogora. This concept is similar to the stories in many Ishiro Honda films, appealing to a brotherhood of man that cooperates globally to find solutions to global problems. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I first encountered this movie when I was researching what would be good to do after the first season of Kaiju Vision, which was all Godzilla movies, every single one in chronological order. I remember liking Dogra the Space Monster from the start, and liking it because it's different. I like that an American is in it, too, and I wanted to learn more about the actor and the character. 1964 was the peak of Kaiju films, arguably, at least in quality. This year was the highest output for Toho for kaiju films, two Godzilla films and Dogra the Space Monster in just one year. After this, budgets started to go down, and this is one indicator of that, is this movie was one of the first ones. Then Gamera appeared in 1965 for the first time. So 1964 is a big cutoff year for many eras. It's also a big year historically, uh, in American history, and in world history. To me, it is when the classic movie era ended. At least to me. And to some people, that's 1970. But I would put it in 1964. Nowadays, 
a movie with a nebulous, strange monster like this would drive some fans up the wall. There's no guy in a suit. Instead, it's a puppet, marionette kind of thing. But I like the unique traits of this kaiju. And this is another movie where Toho kept people guessing as to what's going to come next. If this production had more money and they could have used the original story that they worked on, that would have been better. The scenes they could have made include Dogra monsters attacking New York City, stealing diamonds and deriving energy from them. There's another scene where the creatures levitate the Golden Gate Bridge and another one where they levitate a cruise ship. That would have been nice. Then they go to a Soviet coal mine and they eat up all the coal and then they go attack Tokyo. And it's pretty obvious that a diamond heist would be a cheaper thing to film than that would be. In the novel that was made, which was a prequel to Godzilla Planet of the Monsters, Dogra ends up being the second kaiju to attack Earth in the anime timeline. First, Dogra makes contact with a Russian space station, and then it attacks London. And then it moves on to Manchester, and then the military uses spider venom to kill it. But they threw so much poison into the air that... 3.9 million people ended up being killed, and the city of London was destroyed. In the beginning, satellites have been going missing, and Dogra has been the one who's been doing that. And space satellites were a big deal in this time in history. There were more being shot into space every year, and still are now. The music is among my favorite Ikafube scores. It's mysterious, it's nebulous, just like the kaiju is. There's lots of electronic aspects to the score, which is very appropriate. Lots of sound effects, very alien-like music. It goes along with how this creature, until towards the end when it actually becomes something, is rather a nebulous, uh, ambiguous kind of creature, which is different for a kaiju. Usually it's really easy. The Diamond Heist plot runs parallel to the Dogra-centric plot, and they intersect and interfere with each other in various instances as the film goes on. It's set up like Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, with the Princess Salno plot and the more Ghidorah-centric plot on the other side. In this movie, the plot lines are separate for a longer period of time, and they don't actually join uh, together in a really nice way. They're connected, but it's not a a very nice, uh, really close relationship at the end. Only five minutes in, the humor starts with the singing drunk man levitating due to Dogura's energy. Now, this is a Sekizawa screenplay, so there's nothing out of the ordinary stylistically, and I love the humor in this. It's supposed to be fun. The levitating is work of the famous optical printer that had been utilized recently at Toho. Dogura melting the vault door is a superimposition. Dr. Munakata is played by Nobuo Nakamura, and you may recognize him from Half Human, War of the Gargantuas, The Submersion of Japan, Frankenstein Conquers the World, and The Last War, which are all films from season two of Kaiser Vision, either are out now or will be out by the end of the season. He was also in a number of Kurosawa films. He often ends up playing the professor. Yosuke Natsuki plays Inspector Komei. He acted in six movies in 1964 alone. One was Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. Then Robert Dunham appears as Mark Jackson. As I said in part one, this character was going to come back and have a series of films. His character is entertaining. He's a very 60s sort of character. I'll take a minute to talk about his Japanese. He's pretty decent overall. He speaks with an accent that native speakers would be able to notice, but he was fluent and spoke it quite well. He lived in Japan for years, 22 years actually. Robert Dunham played a smaller part in Mothra, and he was in other scenes in Godzilla vs. Megalon, as the famous Emperor Antonio of Cetopia, wearing that famous, hilarious, unfortunate outfit. He had uncredited appearances in The Last War, King Kong vs. Godzilla, and Mothra vs. Godzilla. He was usually credited by the name Danny or Dan Yuma in Japanese movies. He was an officer in the Marines and served in Yokohama in the military police. He returned to the U.S., but went back to Japan soon after. He opened his own import and export business called Pan Commercial, and he used it to export shoes. Now, do you notice in this movie that we see the shoes under the curtains as a diversion? And that's right before we see Robert Dunham for the first time? I wonder if that's something that he did, or if it was written that way just for him. It's an intriguing coincidence if it is one. 
Dunham also raced cars and motorcycles, and he wrote three satirical books about American perceptions of Japanese culture, and was later a freelance writer. What I enjoy about Bob Dunham is that unlike Nick Adams or Russ Tamblin, he speaks the language, which gives viewers in both Japan and in the West, especially America, a different viewing experience. It's especially different compared to Nick Adams with his very distinctive accent. Regardless, if you're Japanese or American, you're maybe excited by the comparative novelty of a white man speaking Japanese fluently. It's easier to watch the Japanese version of this movie because there's no dubbing at all. I don't know why anybody would want to listen to the dub version of this, though, because it is genuinely atrocious. Mark Jackson dispatching the inspector with the karate chop is fun and humorous, and him knowing judo adds to the character. The car pulling up to him and picking him up, and there's Akiko Wakabayashi there, and she said, get in. And it's kind of like back in Quantum of Solace, the Bond movie, where uh, Olga Korolyanko said the same thing to Bond multiple times when she pulled up in the car. Get in. The line, if you insist, from Mark Jackson is great, and the gun that goes right in his face. The Bond phenomenon was in full swing during this time, and in 1964, the second Bond film, From Russia With Love, was released. Dr. No, the first Bond movie, was released in 1961. So there are all these jewelry thefts. Uh, three in New York City, two in London, three in Paris, Rome, Rio. And supposedly Mark Jackson is a diamond dealer, supposedly. But we don't really know. But the diamond ring only did one of them in Paris. So these diamond thieves are freaked out by the appearance of Dogra and its nebulous characteristics, and they're also puzzled by who's committing these other diamond heists. Then, Akiko and the others bring Mark Jackson in to see the boss of these jewel thieves, and that's when we get our sort of Yakuza movie feel going on, but it's sort of like a spoof of one. They grab the diamonds and pour them out on the table, and they're supposedly the ones that Mark Jackson stole from the professor, but they look different than the ones before, you can tell. Maybe they're the same. They look fake. Look more fake. Something like that. The professor says he looks at diamonds as industrial applications that can, quote, make our lives richer in the future, unquote. Or you can make a giant synthetic diamond to attach to Kiryu and use that as part of an absolute zero cannon to kill Godzilla with. Lots of possibilities out there. The criminal gang finds that the diamonds are fake. And Mark Jackson says, well, I was cheated too, huh? Bye! And he tries to get out, and I just love that. The scene with the inspector and Masayo, the uh, professor's assistant, is amazing. Uh, she's taking him to her place, or he's dropping her off at her place, or something like that. And they get dropped off right in front of the coal fields. And he says how he's surprised that she grew up right in this area. And she says, oh, I'm not a princess. I like that. That kind of adds fun to her character. But then I was like, wait a minute. They didn't just do this so that they could have all three characters, plus the brother played by Hiroshi Koizumi, all there watching this whole thing happen with Dogura. What, what, were they, what were they doing at her house? Oh, I think I know. But th th notice how subtle that is, that the relationship in this movie is portrayed between him and Masaya. You could almost miss it. So they're in, like, the Pittsburgh part of Japan, where, where she's living, I guess. And the first real Dogura scene happens. All this coal gets sucked up. Well, the film gets reversed. And the sounds and the score and the alien-like mystery goes on. And all this indistinct music is all characteristic of this kaiju. Nebulous, ethereal. After this, there's a scene-let where the professor is on to a theory about what happened, mentioning carbon specifically. We're quickly flashed to Jun Tazaki, who is mustacheless at his desk, giving the inspector's orders to get Mark Jackson. There's a well-put-together series of shots, with Mark Jackson walking around the city. At one point, he is on the sidewalk, outside the window of a shoe store, looking at shoes, now that cracked me up because of what I know about his background. It's really funny. It could be that the shoe motif in this movie is an inside joke that is related to him autobiographically. I am impressed with how well this movie was filmed. 
And by that I mean the camera movement and the shot composition. This looks as if somebody has been doing some storyboarding. The camera is where it's supposed to be almost all the time. The camera helps tell the audience the story. Some of the Heisei movies from the Godzilla series, they look like they're shot by a TV crew, or made, you know, like a made-for-TV movie. And for people who notice this kind of thing, it's a weakness. When you compare them to most of the Showa films that feel and look like a movie, they look inferior. With the Toho crew that made this, and quite a few other Showa movies, they took the time to compose the shots, they thought about, and they put care in to what we're seeing on the screen. The scene at the hotel is a fun scene. Mark Jackson and the inspector play tricks on each other to try to capture and then to escape. I would be remiss if I did not notice the possible connections between the human plot of this movie about the diamonds and the phenomenally excellent first two movies that starred Peter Sellers as Inspector Jacques Clouseau. Those would be The Pink Panther from 1963, a year before Dogra was released, and A Shot in the Dark from 1964, which was released about two months before Dogra was released. The movies are fantastic, and I cannot leave out the incredible music by the immortal Henry Mancini. But what are the similarities in the story? We have an inspector, we have a jewel thief stealing diamonds, the inspector is a bit of a bumbling and perhaps overconfident person, kind of a fool, but not completely. But then, when he fools Mark Jackson with the shoes in this scene, he drops down smiling and laughing, and he says, Haha, I got you. But who has the last word? The jewel thief is one step ahead of him, and it's a game of cat and mouse. And if you saw the look on my face when I realized that connection to the Pink Panther, I thought, oh my God, what a perfect time to do this connection. And then I thought, oh my God, it's Cluzo. Another thing to back up this connection is how the inspector is a bit clueless in the scene with the professor and his assistant when he's not too smart about how diamonds work, even though he's the one investigating them. A trademark of Clouseau is that though he's the inspector, he's supposed to be the smart one, but he's the most clueless of them all, in fact. He solves all of his cases by accident. The character of Jacques Clouseau is, of course, based on Agatha Christie's brilliant character, Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. This is why I love doing this show. I'm connecting Dogra the Space Monster to Agatha Christie and to Peter Sellers. Kaiju movies do this kind of thing a lot, though. Think of Godzilla Final Wars and The Matrix. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla and Planet of the Apes. Godzilla vs. Gigan and the comic book genre. Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah and Back to the Future. Godzilla and Mothra, The Battle for Earth and Indiana Jones. And Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2 and Rick Moranis. And in the year the second Jacques Clouseau movie, A Shot in the Dark, came out, the intention was to start Mark Jackson as a character and give him a series of films. Well, that's, that is what happened with Peter Sellers, and he did get a series of films of his own. A Shot in the Dark is a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Peter Sellers is a comedic legend. Moviegoers back then probably would have seen this movie and been able to make a connection to Jacques Clouseau and to the Pink Panther. The Diamond Heist, The Game of Cat and Mouse, Bumbling and Overconfident Inspector, boom, there you go. There's how Dogro the Space Monster was as current as it could be. It's nailed into the time that it was released, just like a lot of the Godzilla movies. I would bet that the Clouseau movies had an impact on the creators of this one. Given how fast these movies were made in 1964, they had time to create a Japanese take on the Pink Panther and maybe even a shot in the dark. I do like this film more because of this connection. So the Jewel Thieves decide to do an old trick, which is to hold up the diamond truck by some means and break in and steal the diamonds. Hilariously, they have Akiko Wakabayashi lie in the middle of the road so that the truck would have to stop. Nowadays, if I was her, I'd say, well, what if they're on their phone? They're going to run right over me and not even see me at all. The predictable gun battle ensues, and Dogura throws everyone off guard by taking the coal out of the truck that just happens upon all this action towards the end. But Dogura didn't take the diamonds. Supposed diamonds. After this, the diamond heist characters in that end of the plot realize that they're actually involved with the Dogura-centered plot. 
we get the mandatory, it can only be explained by monsters scene. And then the newspaper editor comes into the inspector's office, and he's the one who gives the inspectors the information about the diamonds in question and the time, the fact that they were worth much more. So the inspectors didn't find that out. They learned about this through the press. The humor is increased when the newspaper editor answers the police phone on the desk, and then he's like, Masayo? And he tells Komai that she wants to have a date with him. This is written very well. It's very Sekizawa. And I feel like I'm watching King Kong vs. Godzilla, which was connected to the salaryman comedy subgenre in Japan. Uh, Mr. Tago was the most humorous in that movie. Yes, it's Tago, not Taco. In the next scene, Mark Jackson is at the professor's house and is asking him questions about diamonds. I absolutely love how Masayo, played by Yoko Fujiyama, most notably recognized by her appearance the previous year in Atragon, brings the edamame and the coarse or bancha tea, and Mark Jackson reacts favorably to both. And I'm not going to go into the intricacies of Japanese tea culture because we don't have five hours, but it is a lower caffeine tea. Bancha literally means common tea. It's lower quality and is cheaper. It's typically served later in the day, after dinner, and even before bed. It's popular in Japan, but it's not among the favorites in America even today. The soybeans are another interesting touch, because Americans don't typically eat soybeans like that. Edamame refers to the soybeans as a dish, or preparation. It's a typically East Asian way to consume soybeans. The fact that Mark Jackson is enjoying the edamame surprises both Masayo and the professor, and the expressions they have, especially Masayo and the inspector when he learns of it, are priceless. Especially back then, one, seeing an American who even knew what edamame was, and two, seeing an American who enjoyed eating it was rare. If you went up to nearly any American in the early 1960s and asked them what edamame is, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who did. Nowadays, of course, that is very different, and one can find edamame in the frozen vegetable section at the grocery. Mark Jackson is exotic to the Japanese because of his behavior and his attitude. He has the brashness of an American. He's risk-taking, boastful, and difficult to trust. You don't know what side he's on. He has criminal tendencies. He's the center of attention. He fools the inspector and is a step ahead of nearly everyone. There's also an autobiographical aspect to his character, because Dunham was on the boastful side, and this comes through also with the shoes, like I said before, it makes me wonder how much personal influence he had on the script and on the creation of this character. But if you're establishing a Mark Jackson character, especially if you want to have a series of movies based on him, you're going to have to do this. You want to demonstrate that he's an international, cosmopolitan, sort of worldly man. The only Americans who would likely be in this category are tourists who traveled to Japan or been on military deployment, or are part of the international class of businessmen. And Bob Dunham was all three of these in real life. Mark Jackson says he's an insurance association investigator who is trailing diamond thieves himself. This is very likely not true, but his official-looking ID shuts up the Japanese authorities immediately, which is kind of funny. The inspector tells him that wherever he learned his Japanese, he had a vulgar teacher, because Mark Jackson says, you're nuts, which I can't help but think there's more to that than what it says in the subtitles. Another moment of levity, possibly my favorite in the movie, is when the thieves discover that the diamonds they stole are fake, and in fact they're sugar, they're candy. One of them tastes the sugar and laughs, and the boss you know, bursts out and says, what's so funny? And the reaction the others have when he yells is cartoonish and funny, and it's very well executed. It's, it's awesome. The final connection between our two human plots is made when they realize that Dogra has been taking the coal and the diamonds. They dangle a very cool idea in front of us when the professor says that humans could be the next target since humans are carbon-based organisms. If anyone makes a new version of this story, a Dogra monster that levitates and consumes humans would be a wild thing to watch indeed. Being a fan of Star Trek, I cannot do this episode without connecting Dogra to the 1988 episode of Star Trek The Next Generation titled Data Lore. That's the episode where the Enterprise encounters the Crystalline Entity, which is a life-consuming, space-faring creature that looks like a complex snowflake. 
It's huge and can consume all the life from entire planets. It converts organic things into energy that it needs to survive. Sounds pretty familiar. I think it's very possible that Gene Roddenberry or some of the creative minds behind Star Trek saw Dogra the Space Monster, and that ended up influencing the Star Trek episode and a 1991 episode, also from TNG, also featuring the Crystalline Entity. Roddenberry and company, I think, would have liked seeing Japanese kaiju films. There's a moment where we hear a radio announcer saying that the monster attacked a diamond mine in Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe. That would have been really cool to see. But because this is the beginning of the 1970s already, in 1964, uh, we're starting down the road to lower budgets and not being able to see as many cool things. The inspector figures out that the diamonds were fake, after nearly everybody else already had. And then Akiko approaches Mark Jackson. She figured out he was the one with the real diamonds, and she proposes double-crossing the gang. So she's attracted to the diamonds because they're worth so much. I also imagine that the price of diamonds would go up if they kept disappearing and aliens kept, kept absorbing them. But that's not really discussed. I cannot help but think about North by Northwest when I watched these few scenes that are on the train to Kyushu, which that starred Ava Marie Saint and Cary Grant. The last take is a train going into a tunnel, too, although this time I don't think there's any sexual innuendo because there doesn't seem to be much of a sexual implication in between Mark Jackson and Akiko. Being a Hitchcock fan, I wonder if this film has anything to do with To Catch a Thief, which stars Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. And in it, Cary Grant plays a jewel thief who mainly steals diamonds. He is referred to as the cat. There is a copycat on the loose, stealing diamonds and making it look like he did it. As a result, he wants to find out what's exactly been going on, and he tries to clear himself. He is assisted by an insurance investigator, hmm, played by the actor John Williams, who realizes Cary Grant isn't the one who did it. And then there's Grace Kelly's character, who falls in love with him because he's sexy and because she's turned on by the fact that he's adventurous and has this risky personality. It's a film I absolutely love. But there are similarities between this and Dogra the Space Monster. Cary Grant's character in To Catch a Thief is an expatriate who lives in France. There are similarities between the characters. Mark Jackson is the smart one, always a step ahead. That's also the same for Cary Grant's character, John Roby. The insurance investigator is there, too, because Mark Jackson actually impersonates an, an insurance investigator, possibly, in order to throw off the Japanese police. Also, Akiko Wakabayashi's character decides to steal the diamonds from the thieves and then tries to conspire with Mark Jackson. That is similar to Catch the Thief in this way. The real jewel thief is impersonating Cary Grant's character, and that ends up being a woman, a jewel thief, who is in it for herself and for her father. So she's maliciously taking advantage of the situation in order to gain incredible wealth, which is exactly what Akiko Wakabayashi's character does. Akiko Wakabayashi's character is yet another evil woman in the kaiju genre. She most famously played the Bond girl in You Only Live Twice, a James Bond film that has most to do with Japan by far. It's a very typical 60s Bond movie, but at least in this one he doesn't turn a lesbian woman straight. Like most evil women in Japanese kaiju movies, she is defeated and she pays for her actions by losing her life. When the alert happens that Dogura is coming, and they turn on that sound amplifier device to listen, that's really cool. And that's when we hear the angry bees, and we get some special effects with the multicolored rocks falling. And they look like sort of chalk-colored rocks that got broken into pieces. It sort of is like an extreme weather event when you get this softball or baseball-sized hail falling on people. Just like in Gator of the Three-Headed Monster, a series of scenes occurs in a hotel. After the scene with Mark Jackson and Komei climbs down to the balcony below, Mark Jackson, he uh, does this sort of cautionary expression, and he's like, oh, 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 especially just as I think a Japanese person I've heard has done that. This is a very Japanese way of doing it. The professor is clarifying to the inspector what he does. Like, he says, I don't have anything to do with monsters. And then Komei asks, what is it then? And the professor gives the one-word answer, bees. And it's kind of like that Cards Against Humanity card, and it just says bees with a question mark on it. Finally, Dogura appears with some more physicality. 
there are the tentacles coming down, and there's the whole jellyfish. The very obligatory JSDF scene occurs, but they aren't totally ineffective this time. They're actually effective in making the situation worse. And that is referencing the mitosis that they go through, and it seems that more of them are created. And that's like a classic Heisei way to uh, do things. You, you try to solve the Godzilla problem, and the Godzilla problem only gets worse. The part where Dogura grabs onto the bridge, that is clearly an animation. And so that was done separately. And then there was the water tank, and that was done when they just had the jellyfish flying around in the air. Dr. Munakata figures out that it was angry wasps that stung Dogra and caused them to crystallize and fall to Earth. And it's like Shin Godzilla when they were synthesizing the blood coagulant. There's a scene with all these Bunsen burners and test tubes and everything. It also reminds me of the scene in Gamera vs. Gauss when they created the synthetic blood. In the next hotel scene, I get a kick out of when Mark Jackson reverts to English and says, you can't take that, when they grab the key to the safe deposit box that the real diamonds are supposedly stored in. Sabu's reaction comedy, the, the sort of the short dude, and he, he was in Mothra, if you remember him, but his comedy is again like solid gold, and that is after Hamako double-crosses him and steals the diamonds for herself, and he's like panicking, he's hilarious. I love that his name in the credits is Sabu the Small Fry, I don't think tension was what this movie was trying to accomplish. It seems to be a comedic take on the Yakuza movies. And then if you combine that with the Pink Panther, then, then you've got a lot of what this movie is. The shoot-em-up scene on the beach at the end of the movie reminds me of the Destroy All Monsters scene four years later, minus the dynamite, of course. I think this scene would have been better if it had had music, but there doesn't seem to be music during this, and it kind of doesn't work. There's not much that's interesting about the ending, besides how strikingly similar it is to Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. The conclusion of the story is set at the airport, and someone is leaving, there's a heartfelt goodbye, and we tie up a sort of meaningless diamond heist story. And there's even a horribly polluting Boeing 707, now uh, out for a long time, uh, that's uh, polluting the air as we leave. <laughs> that concludes part two, and now I will move on to our related topic. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. For this episode, I decided to choose the Lion Court Rocks dispute. I chose this because only a year after the making of this movie, the 1965 Treaty on Basic Relations was signed between Japan and South Korea, which recognized this dispute. South Korea is also referred to as the Republic of Korea, or the ROK. North Korea is the People's Republic of Korea, or the PRK. The Japanese Empire had Korea as a colony from 1910 to 1945, so that's 35 years that Koreans were under imperial rule. That's an entire generation, quite a long time. One result of that treaty was that Japan compensated South Korea in the amount of $800 million in grants and soft loans. Japan originally wanted to compensate the South Koreans individually, but the ROK government insisted that they take compensation and give it to the citizens. The people with right to compensation included people who were conscripted into the military and into labor. The issue of comfort women and victims of crimes against humanity was not addressed, and there are still disagreements about that. However, there is another part of this treaty that was important. It recognized a dispute between Japan and the Republic of Korea regarding the Lion Court Rocks. The Lion Court Rocks are primarily two large rocks, or islets, in the Sea of Japan, 40 miles northwest of Shimane Prefecture in Japan on the Japanese mainland, and 140 miles east of the South Korean mainland. Japan refers to them as Takashima, and South Korea refers to them as Dokdo. The South Korea Coast Guard has administered the islands since 1954. They've gone for centuries uninhabited before the 20th century. In the Rusk documents in the early 1950s, the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Eastern Affairs told the South Korean ambassador to the U.S. that the Lion Court Rocks have never been treated as part of Korea and since 1905 were part of Shimane Prefecture, and that the Lion Court Rocks had never been claimed by Korea. The Lion Court Rocks came under Japan's possession during the Russo-Japanese War. 
The Treaty of San Francisco, which was signed, doesn't mention the Lion Court Rocks by name in the list of territories Japan surrendered when the war was over. South Korea insists that the Lion Court Rocks are among the territories Japan surrendered after the war and should be considered Korean territory again. The United States has a neutral position on this issue now, as both Japan and South Korea are U.S. allies. Back in 1954, when the South Korean Coast Guard started administration of the rocks, the Japanese government called for the issue to be taken to the International Court of Justice to decide which country should be in possession of that territory. But since South Korea has the islets now, they are reluctant to go to the ICJ and have refused to go to this day. With the ICJ, both parties have to agree to arbitration, so it's different than just being in one of those courts that you can just take somebody to court with. This, it has to be both parties having to agree. The South Koreans would be taking a chance on losing if they did go to the International Court of Justice, and it's my estimation that Japan has a higher likelihood of winning a court case. In the early 1950s, the U.S. military used the Lion Court rocks as a bombing range. The Japan-U.S. Joint Committee planned this. Though the U.S. believes the Lion Court rocks are probably Japanese territory, they remain neutral on this, and they recommend that the ICJ be given the court case. The U.S. wants a non-violent diplomatic resolution to the issue. South Korea has rejected all requests from Japan to even have bilateral meetings about the dispute. I'm not going to go all the way back to nearly the year 500 with all of the history of this, or all of the maps that people point to or things like that. One, it would take way too long, and two, I want to get beyond just listing historical events. Instead, I will cover recent events and say why things are the way they are now. Since the early 2000s, this dispute has increased in intensity. In 2005, Shimane Prefecture established Takashima Day to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the Japanese possession of the Lion Court Rocks. It was done because of local issues more than national ones. Fishing interests were the main reason, as it involved quotas for how many fish countries can catch in the fishing zone by law. South Korea said this was tantamount to a celebration and commemoration of imperialism and colonialism, and tensions flared. In 2006, the president of the ROK told Japan that they demand an apology over the colonization of Korea. He went further, saying that Dokdo is Korean territory and it is the first of Korean territory that Japan took possession of when the colonization began. As a result, the Lion Court Rocks are an important symbol for South Korea, and giving that up would be a huge blow to their national ego. Then there's the textbooks. In 2008, middle school textbooks had the dispute mentioned in them. This was met with a lot of anger from South Korea, and they recalled their ambassador from Japan in protests, and there were demonstrations. In 2011, three conservative members of the LDP party in Japan went to South Korea to try to visit Ulung, which is a South Korean island close to the Lion Court Rocks. The South Korean government had actually warned them not to try it, and immigration officials stopped them at the airport in Seoul when they landed. The politicians did this possibly because the LDP was out of power for one of the very few times in Japanese history post-war. They did this to improve their credentials and make the DPJ, which was in power, the Democratic Party of Japan, look weak on borders. They were clearly playing to their base of voters and not to Japan as a whole. In 2012, the president of the ROK visited the Lion Court Rocks. And he said that the emperor of Japan would not be allowed in Korea until Japan has made amends for its crimes. The president did this to score political points, nothing more. And Japan withdrew their ambassador in protest. 2012 was the last time Japan called for the dispute to go to the International Court of Justice. The rocks have great meaning and are a symbol for the bilateral relationship between South Korea and Japan. The dispute over these islets is an expression of the long memories that East Asia has from the war and going back to at least 1910 when Korea was colonized by the empire. These feelings are still quite strong. The question of natural resources comes into play, too, because if you possess territory, you possess what is under it. There is potentially a large amount of natural gas under the ocean in that vicinity, which makes the dispute a higher-stakes battle. There are fishing resources in the area, too, very heavy fishing resources. 
The South Koreans have mentioned building a resort hotel on the islands as well. I'm not sure the area is hospitable enough to want to go all the way out there to stay in a hotel, but you know the saying, if you build it, they will come. Currently, there is a lighthouse, a police barracks, a desalinization facility for water, and a helipad on the site. There are reports of very large amounts of pollution from human activity, mainly because there is raw sewage that has been going directly into the ocean around it. Wildlife indigenous to the area is also threatened. The weather is not particularly good there either. Other reasons why the conflict is intractable or getting worse include the following. The media in both countries are not helping with the dispute. Politically biased media sources describe the dispute in black and white as a zero-sum game that must be won. Media sources put pressure on politicians and create incentives for political grandstanding. The media sources do not often discuss the actual nuances in the issue, and instead describe the dispute in simplistic us-versus-them terms. The way they cast the issue is a big problem. I was somewhat surprised by both the South Korean and Japanese governments, which shell out millions of dollars per year in campaigns that support their territorial claims. The campaigns are designed to make the dispute have resonance with the public more. The campaigns are propaganda to push the official state message on the dispute. These campaigns erode bilateral cooperation, which in turn erodes bilateral cooperation on other issues, causing a spillover effect. This is especially bad if mutual economic interests are damaged by all of this political theater. The more upset people you have, the dispute is harder to resolve. Also, when politicians use the national media as a megaphone to yell at other countries with, that reduces the likelihood that politicians can reach an agreement in private. There is also the question of momentum, where if the ICJ were to decide in Japan's favor, the momentum would be viewed as being in favor of Japan on further issues of this type. ICJ decisions are non-binding too, so South Korea could just ignore the decision should they receive an unfavorable verdict. Another problem that added tensions in this dispute makes worse is that it could reduce cooperation and thus reduce military readiness to deal with if and when a conflict should occur regarding North Korea. This would happen because already there is a conflict regarding self-defense forces and the Korean armed forces. The relationship between Japan and South Korea is currently at a very low point. It partially has to do with a Korean warship that targeted a JASDF plane, which the big deal with that is the only step after targeting something is firing on it. Japanese interest in Korean culture has also flagged recently. Japan and South Korea are also very different from what they were like after the end of the war. South Korea has grown by leaps and bounds economically, and that puts South Korea on more even footing with Japan. The two countries still have dated perceptions of each other, though, partially because of long memories. South Korea still has the impression that they're the underdog in the region. There's an incongruity between reality and perception. I will point to the evidence for this. Just last year, with the 2018 Olympics, an NBC analyst accidentally stepped in it when he made the remark that Japan as a country which occupied Korea from 1910 to 1945, but every Korean will tell you that Japan is a cultural, technological, and economic example that has been important to their own transformation, quote-unquote. The outrage in South Korea came quickly and strongly. NBC quickly apologized. One South Korean petition said that no Korean would attribute rapid economic growth of South Korea to Japanese imperialism. The petition said that their remarks were deeply hurtful and outrageous. This reaction is indicative of the attitudes that South Korea have very much had since the end of the Pacific War. Some Koreans said that his comment was indicative of how the U.S. values Japan more highly than South Korea, but I don't think that the NBC analyst was speaking on behalf of all Americans, nor was he speaking on behalf of the United States government. This experience just goes to show how the more things change, the more things stay the same. So what will make this dispute better? Respect. Realizing common interests are more plentiful than issues of disagreement. Politicians need to stop playing to a small nationalist minority when they're down in the polls and feel desperate. They are damaging long-term goals by concentrating on short-term stuff like this. They tend to do this grandstanding on nationalistic issues when they've done th something stupid and need to get people back on their side. Some of that could be connected to corruption, which angers the voters. 
The media needs to stop covering people who run around doing and saying stupid things just to get attention. The media is their willing megaphone that follows them around. The media creates a nice safe bubble for politicians to create alternative realities where the other is casted as pure evil. There are real consequences that could happen if tensions rise high enough. Stop breeding mistrust. Quit capitalizing on old grievances. There are a lot of politicians out there who realize that if they solve a problem, then they have no purpose anymore. This type of attitude could best be attributed to Yasser Arafat, but it fits many more personalities than just him. Not solving an issue and instead raising endless money from it and then getting elected in perpetuity is a better option for them than solving the problem. It's an issue that never gets solved and they pump money and power and re-election out of it. It's the whole thing of, if we compromise, we lose, which is such an unfortunate phenomenon. I agree with the American position on this, which is to remain neutral and also to support existing international structures such as the ICJ to finally solve this issue. Presently, the best way to repair relations between Japan and South Korea is to ignore this issue and work around it by finding common ground on a myriad of other issues instead. This is the last 1964 kaiju movie that is going to be on Kaiju Vision Radio because it's the third, because we've already done the other two. Nevertheless, I will say what the economic figures were for this year because it's a high number, as well as uh, I do this every episode. In 1964, the GDP growth for Japan was 11.67% in one year, which that is astoundingly huge. This episode is dedicated to two people this time, to Robert Dunham and to Yosuke Natsuki. These two actors have been very recognizable in the kaiju fandom. A lot of people remember Robert Dunham's appearance as Emperor Antonio more often, but I think Robert Dunham's performance in Dogura is way better and that he should be remembered more for this. Regarding Yosuke Natsuki, kaiju fans should check out the Kurosawa movies he was in. Great stuff. He was in a lot of movies. Some of the greatest classic movies during Toho's golden age and in movies long after that. The next episode of this podcast will be 1965's Frankenstein Conquers the World, or Frankenstein vs. Baragon. Though I really love War of the Gargantuas more than this, I am going to see what we can find that's interesting in this story. I'm sure there's something. I don't watch it very much, though. I watch War of the Gargantuas quite a lot. War of the Gargantuas will actually be our big 50th episode. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patrons, Sean Stiff and William Mize. Thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. Sean donated at the Kaiju Visionary level, and William donated at the Kaiju Commander level. Donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what's going on in the show. You get to message and talk with me personally about the programming. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with Scenic Videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.